This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. When people start a band or sign to a label, they're ideally entering into relationships that will last for years. And years later, it's often hard to remember what you agreed upon at the beginning. This is one reason contracts can come in handy. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit merchtable.com to learn more and open a store today. On today's show, we talk about label contracts, band contracts, when you should have them, what they can do for you, and why. It's all coming up on the future of what. Support for the future of what comes from Sound Exchange. You're listening to the future of what. I'm talking to Gondar Savor. Gondar, welcome to the future of what. Thank you. So we're going to talk to you today about contracts, which is definitely one of my favorite topics. I'm really interested in contracts. I do them all the time. But why don't you just get started by talking about how long you've been an entertainment lawyer? Sure. I've been an entertainment lawyer for about 12 years now. And before that, I had a little bit of experience releasing records with a small record label and playing in some bands and things like that. So I have some contract experience that spans a little bit further back from that. And we've had our law firm for, I guess, nine years now. And so, yeah, I, I've, I've spent a, a good deal of time dealing with all sorts of music-related contracts and other you know, general business contracts. Definitely. So I always use contracts when I make deals with artists. And in my mind, the most helpful piece of advice I ever got about that was someone who just told me, you figure when you enter into a relationship with an artist that you're going to keep going, right? That it's going to be a long lasting thing. And really 20 years from now, are you going to remember what you guys agreed to? And so the most useful point about a contract is it writes down what everybody is agreeing to at the moment so that you don't have to remember it on your own 20 years later. Right. And look up emails and, you know, try to try to remember what people said on the phone and et cetera. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that can really, I mean, memory is really a problem. And we have that, I mean, now that the label's, my label's 26 years old, we actually have artists who've been on the label for that long. So it's like, yeah, you know, I can't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. Like, it's really difficult you know, that's that would be asking a lot. So in my mind, I think for bands to do contracts with labels makes a lot of sense. Is that something that you also advise bands to do? Absolutely. You could be asking for problems if you don't have some sort of basic contract. You know, a contract can be structured very fairly so that it's something that can, you know, help the band. But absolutely, you know, removing that uncertainty is going to avoid problems in the future. And, and you know, especially for Bands that, you know, perhaps it's their first record deal, for example, or they don't have much experience with how, how these things work. It kind of just provides like a blueprint of what the relationship is going to be like and how all the financial aspects work and who's responsible for what, which can provide a lot of clarity for the band moving forward. I, I always think it's important for both sides to have a contract. You know, some contracts can be really short. Other ones can be unnecessarily long. So there's different styles of contracts and sometimes a lot of like, the substance of a contract might be unnecessary. But having a written agreement that details how it's going to work, I think that's very important. Yeah. And, you know, you're in a position probably to have seen a lot of different types of contracts. At Kill Rock Stars, we use a profit share model, which is sort of the old independent label 50-50 split style contract when we do something with artists. But then the world of majors and now I'm sure many other indies as well as majors use a percentage model, percentage deal and my understanding of the big difference when entering into any contract, I mean, a 50-50 contract is pretty obvious, right? Like, that's pretty helpful, is just that you really need to understand what you're agreeing to. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah. You, you just need to understand what you're agreeing to and, you know, regarding the royalties and how the financial side works, you know, how, how money's calculated because you're not going to necessarily see what's under the hood, you know, and uh, if you have a general idea of how royalties are calculated, which should be stated in the contract, 
And then you can know, especially if a band takes off and a lot of money starts coming in, you know, it can get very convoluted, especially with major labels and, and when you have retail-based deals or PPD deals. It's a long process to get from, you know, the sale coming in and, and that money and then, and then to what the actual royalty is. So it's, it's important to have, to have a general understanding of that and to, to lay that out in the contract. And the fact that most labels these days, even larger labels, are moving towards 50-50 deals I think it's great because there's less confusion. So there's less room for the label to kind of abuse uh, its role in accounting and, and uh, make things um, overly complicated, perhaps to, you know, for their benefit. Oh, that's so interesting. You're saying that, that even bigger labels are moving towards a 50-50 deal. That makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, it's funny because 11 years ago when I started in this business, I felt like everybody was moving away from the 50-50 deal and towards the percentage deal. But then like two or three years after I took over the company was when we had the big like internet revolution and, and all of a sudden you couldn't sell physical product like you used to be able to. And so necessarily that makes actually a lot of sense because obviously, you know, just so people understand who are listening who may have never seen such a percentage contract, usually those percentage deals are a percentage of physical sales, right? Like a retail sale price. That's right. Yep. So can you just explain that for the young musicians listening who are like, we have no idea what you guys are talking about. How does a percentage deal normally work for a band? So, you know, usually it's, it's a retail royalty rate, or sometimes there might be a wholesale royalty rate, which is often referred to like a PPD deal. So they were basing it, you know, historically on, let's say it costed, you know, let's say seventeen ninety nine for the sale of a record in a record store. So they would say that's the retail rate, and then they would chop down that, you know, rather than getting, let's say you had a uh, 15% royalty rate, rather than getting 15% of that whole amount, they were cutting off, you know, a bunch of different expenses that became very convoluted and very confusing. And then ultimately, you were getting a base amount that they were taking that, that royalty rate against. And then even that was standing behind a bunch of different things that were being recouped as advances. So it became very, very difficult for even, you know, even for music attorneys to fully understand how the royalties were being calculated under a record deal. That, that made the negotiation of a deal unnecessarily you know, long and complicated. And the fact that different labels were, were doing it differently. You know? So under a 50-50 deal, you just take all of the expenses that the, that the label typically is the one incurring the expenses, and the label gets to recoup all of that. And then once the label starts making profit, then it's just split 50-50 down the middle, maybe just subject to an advance that the, the label has paid, uh, maybe for recording of the album or, or otherwise, which is advance on the, that band's share of the, of the royalties. Do you think this is specifically in reaction to streaming? Because, you know, in my mind, that makes a lot of sense because I have to do royalties four times a year and I have to calculate the streaming income. And income on streaming is really, it's, it's just so much lower than income on record sales. You know, it's like, well, proportionally, I mean, if you have a big artist, they're making a lot on streaming, but it's not, you know, unitary. It's not like you could say, okay, we, we sold 7,000 units and this is how much we made, you know, and it, it like kind of has a, I don't know, that felt more concrete. With streaming, it's just so up in the air. You're just like, well, I don't know. Are we going to make $10 or are we going to make $10,000? Like, it just seems really difficult. So I feel like labels are kind of at the mercy of the service providers to give us that information. So, you know, when people talk a lot about transparency and stuff, I think record labels, I mean, I'm not going to speak for majors. I'm just going to speak for myself. I'd love to be as transparent as humanly possible with my artists. But when the data that I receive is not particularly transparent, that's like as far as I can go with them. Right. Yeah. And I think that's a good reason why a lot of labels have moved to 50-50 deals because, you know, back in the day, they might have been primarily making their money from just the sale of physical records. So they could say, oh, well, we, we sold this many records and this was the price we sold them for. And, but now labels are, are receiving different sorts of income. They're participating some, often in, in additional you know, revenue streams. So when you have a 50-50 deal, you can just say, well, we received X dollars from this and Y dollars from that and just kind of add it all up and then say, this is all the revenue we, you know, we made. It doesn't have to be necessarily tied to just the sale of you know, a certain number of records. It can be from different you know, revenue types. Yeah, exactly. Unruly tired sun Willing to spare no one From planes up to the peaks 
This hate's stealing faith from the weak was The Drought by Horse Feathers. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Gondar Savor. So let's talk about when an artist is entering into a deal with a label, 
you know, at my label, I always, always tell artists to get a lawyer to look at the contract, even though my contract is only four pages long, because if people aren't, aren't used to reading contracts, there's language in there that might be hard to understand. And you should, I really feel like people should understand what they're signing. Like They should not sign something without understanding it. But when you're going into like a major label deal or a deal that's going to be like, you know, has potential for having big money, the rule in of thumb in the past was that the artist always wanted to walk into that with as much leverage as possible in order to have the weight to get themselves some concessions and get themselves a better deal, right? Especially when we used to talk about percentage deals, which to my knowledge started at like 12% of retail and then minus, like you were saying, minus, minus, minus packaging deductions, advances, blah, 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 blah. And so the artist would end up with like a very small royalty because they didn't have any leverage entering into the contract negotiations. And I think also having a really good lawyer can be extremely helpful in that process. What have you experienced with that? Oh, that's definitely the case. There's, you know, a, a, a contract can change so much from the start of negotiation to the end. And, you know, the label will typically, you know, even, even you know, and I'm not saying that this is necessarily an evil thing, but a label presents a contract that is favorable to it in, in terms of accounting and things like that. And then, if you know, a lawyer is customarily going to negotiate a lot of those things to be better for both sides or, or just, you know, more favorable for, for the artist. And that's just that happens with every contract that's negotiated by a lawyer. So for a band to, you know, even, even if it's a super fair artist friendly label, it's never going to make sense for a band to just sign a contract without review by an attorney because there's always changes that are made that will make it more fair for the artist. Absolutely. One of the more common things that I've seen lately in the last five or six years, and I think it's directly related to artists getting more educated about the business side, which is awesome. I'm very, I'm always in favor of that. That's why I do this podcast, is sort of an increase in artists' desire to have licensing deals rather than perpetuity deals. And a perpetuity deal for anyone who's listening is, you know, basically where the label owns the masters in perpetuity forever, a licensing deal, basically the artist licenses the masters to the label for a certain period of time. And I've definitely seen artists come in much more savvy and asking for licensing deals right up front. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and it's, it's very common. And also under 50-50 deals, it's very common for the band to be licensing the record. And, you know, that's that's something that, you know, there's a lot of labels out there that, you know, their, their general contract just says, you know, that it's a work for hire where the label's going to own the record. And if the band has a lawyer and the lawyer asks, then it, it, they'll convert it to a licensing deal. Just, you know, they're just, they expect that. So that's, that's a great example of one of these changes that a lawyer can get for you. That that's great because I remember, you know, when I was younger, I thought a 15 year or a 12 year license, I thought that was, a, that was a long period of time. And I really don't think that anymore. You know, a lot of bands, you know, when they're successful, they're playing for a lot longer than that. So if you have a, if you have a, a 12 year license, and you're a successful band, you know, you're going to be, you're still going to be out there touring and selling records when that, when those rights revert to you. And if you choose to take that record back and release it yourself, that that's going to be something that will be very valuable to you. So, and it's funny because the, the license terms, when I first started practicing used to be much shorter, they, you know, seven year deals were very common, even with like the big indies and stuff. I saw a lot of seven year licenses. I occasionally saw five year terms, you know, now you typically see longer terms, maybe 12 year, 15 year, but there's a big difference between having a 12 year, 15 year term versus having a perpetual deal or having a work for hire. So yeah, that's, that's a very important change that can be made to a contract. Let's talk about the front end of a contract too, because I think this is also a very important piece and that is the advance. You know, in historic terms, a label like mine where you're doing a straight profit share 50-50, our whole business model was to spend as little upfront as possible so that everybody recoups more quickly because, you know, the artist doesn't make money till we make money. We don't make money till the artist makes money. But, you know, if you spend so much on the album upfront and you don't recoup, you know, and that you can't possibly recoup it, then nobody makes any money. And it's sort of, so that, that business model, that particular, like the profit share model, it kind of demands a lower front end, a lower advance and less, you know, maybe massive marketing budget, depending on the artist, of course, and depending on where, where they're at in their career. Have you seen across the board that advances have been going down or is that not the case? Yeah, I have seen that advances have been going down steadily, you know, over the last 
you know, seven or eight years, 10 years. But, I, you know, on the flip side of that, if you have a band that's really taking off and people are passionate about it, you still see some crazy things, crazy offers. You know, you can still be surprised from time to time. And that's awesome, you know. And I think because at the end of the day, there's less money coming in. There's less records being sold. So when labels are crunching numbers and figuring out what, what's a rational offer to make, unfortunately, it doesn't look as appealing as it used to. But, you know, people are still very passionate about music. And that passion can be very irrational. You'll see, <laughs> you'll still see some, some crazy things. And that's, and that's fun, too, you know. So overall, I think the general trend is, yes, definitely smaller advances. Once in a while, I still see some, some huge advance offers being made for, you know, for record deals, publishing, things like that. But yeah, I, you know, what I like about net profit splits is that, you know, retail deals, the major labels, it's so convoluted that there could be situations where the labels are making tons of money, but, they, but they're spending a lot of money to a point where the, the artist is not making any royalties, you know, and when you, when you do a 50-50 net profit split, you're exactly, you know, standing shoulder to shoulder between the label and the artist. And so you're in the same boat. So everybody wants to, to turn a profit and make some money. So hopefully a label is going to be you know, frugal enough that, that you can turn a profit, but also invest enough so that the, you're giving the most potential to that project as possible. So I think it evens it out, you know, and I think that's great. Did you see a dip, like, you know, in the 2009-2010 period where, like, everything went down, advances, marketing budgets, everything, and have those been creeping up, you know, or is, is everything going down sort of commensurate with this increase in, in the profit share model? I definitely have seen a dip and, and even, you know, some really big indies that have put out, you know, records that have been really, really successful, you know, on their next record, they'll have a, you know, a smaller band or whatever. And you'll still see an advance that, you know, it could be a three record deal. And the first advance could be like five grand or less, you know, and when people think of like these big, these bigger indies and record deals, that's not what they're expecting, you know, <laughs> right. And I'm walking a band through this. Oh, you got to, you, you know, like congratulating them on getting an offer from, from a huge label and then they see what the advance is like, it can be a bit shocking. And I have to explain to them, you know, unfortunately, this is the landscape right now, you know, because labels are taking a hit, you know, and the, the choice the labels have to make is, are, are they going to participate in all these other revenue streams? Are they going to try to grab a, some money out of a band's live performances and merchandise and publishing and all that sort of stuff? Or are they going to keep it simple and still operate like a traditional label? If they want to, you know, just profit off of record sales, then they have to have smaller advances because records are, you know, it's a fraction of what it used to be in terms of record sales. So it makes perfect sense. So I, I always defend labels in that regard when I'm speaking with artists and just saying, you know, realistically, there's less money coming in. But, you know, the label's crucially important and needs to be compensated for the risk that they're taking, which is, you know, they're taking a pretty big risk on, on almost all bands they sign that are, that are unknown bands or baby bands, you know? So in order to, you know, in order to hedge there, then the, the, the advance has to be much smaller and it has to be reasonable. Yeah. I appreciate you saying that because I always say that indie labels in particular are the risk takers of the music industry because we are, we're the ones who are like, Hey, you've never heard of this band, but they're amazing. <laughs> and then we're like, and we're going to put a bunch of money into it. And then, Oh crap. You know, if, if it doesn't connect with people, like we're the ones who take the hit. Yeah. I mean, indie labels deserve a lot of credit for that, you know, because they're, you know, all the best bands out there, in my opinion, you know, these days, you know, they're, they're indie bands and they're getting a shot at this because people who are, you know, passionate about music are devoting their careers, you know, doing something that's in a way higher risk and potentially, you know, going to be less successful for them uh, in order to expose this music that they're passionate about to, you know, to the masses. So I, you know, we, we represent labels and, and we represent bands and I've seen both sides of it. And, you know, but I really understand the plight of an indie label these days is that it's, you know, it's more likely than not that you're going to lose money. So you got to work that much harder to try, you know, and it, it could be a thankless task because you have lawyers negotiating so hard against you as if you're trying to, you know, grab all this money when just turning a profit is in a, is a challenge in and of itself. So, but yeah, that's the landscape right now, you know, so I have a lot of respect for the indie labels that are doing what they're doing. Yay. <laughs> Me too. I, you know, I meet people on a weekly basis or monthly basis who are starting indie labels. And I'm always like, wow, <laughs> I can't believe you're starting an indie label in 2017. It's the love of music, you know, that's what, yeah. that's what's making all of us do what, you know, what, what we do at the end of the day. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. Baby, 
That was Cascades by Horse Feathers. You're listening to The Future of What. After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. Support for The Future of What comes from Merch Table. Kill Rockstars has partnered with Merch Table for almost six years now, and they've come through for us in a lot of ways. Like when the comedian Kurt Brownoller wanted a face towel with his face on it. Merch Table found a way to make this. And it's been one of our most popular items in our mail order store. KRS loves Merch Table. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Gondar Savor. So do you have any particular words of wisdom for young bands with regards to contracts or just even, you know, anything about getting sort of getting to the next level in the music business? Absolutely. You know, on the topic of contracts, I speak to, you know, bands uh, often and they feel that they need a lawyer when they get their first record deal, that that's the time that you need a lawyer. And unfortunately, what will happen is that bands will often sign some other types of contracts beforehand. 
thinking that, you know, they don't have to be negotiated because, you know, they haven't gotten their big record deal yet. And those contracts can be very damaging to the band's career in, you know, after that. Oh, you mean like management contracts or something like that? Yeah. Like one, yeah. One example would definitely be management contracts. I've seen some horrifying (laughs) management contracts that bands have come to me and said, Hey, you know, I'm trying to get out of this contract I signed, you know, a year ago or whatever. And, you know, we didn't really have anybody represent us at the time. And you'll see some really stepped up deals, you know, and some management contracts will be like a five record deal or something like that. You know, the manager doesn't really have obligations under it other than to like give advice to the, to the band, but the, but the manager will have a, you know, you know, 20% or whatever, you know, commission on the artist's gross earnings potentially forever. Right. Not just, they don't, they don't get their commission just during the term, but you know, for any agreements that are entered into during the term, for example, if they enter into a record deal during the term and it's a it's a four record deal where well the manager is gonna get, you know, all four of those records are gonna get their full commission, you know, for forever. So there's there's things that are just extremely unfair, you know, that, that absolutely have to be negotiated by an attorney. Right. Another example would be production deals. I guess I see less of those these days, but I've still seen many of them. Producers will, you know, find a band and they'll say, Oh, you know, I really like your your sound. I think you guys have potential. So let me record a few tracks and then I'll shop you guys and I'm going to do it free of charge. And so, you know, for many bands, uh, and these deals used to be very popular 10, 15 years ago. So many bands will think, oh, this is my big break. You know, it it seems very kind of like a classic story. You know, I was discovered by a producer and he recorded me for free because he's so passionate about my music. But these production deals will often say that, you know, that the producer has, you know, two years or something to assist in finding the, the band a record deal. And if they do, then the producer is written in to, you know, to produce every single record under the deal. And they're getting wow. extremely, extremely high production fees. And they exclusively control the rights to the artist's performances. So what that means is that the record company is actually contracting with the producer. Whoa. So they're getting a huge portion now of the band's royalties as well, in addition to the... Right. And it's like, you know, bands don't realize what they're... When they're signing these things, they just think that somebody's helping them out and working for free, yeah. you know? So, you know, that's another example of these early, these early stage kind of contracts that people sign that can be really damaging, you know? I guess the, the last example that I would give, about you know, for, for something that bands should consider early on is band agreements. Because... Not every band is is structured the same. You know, you might have, you know, four guys from New Jersey playing in their garage, you know, and writing, you know, all writing the songs together, and then they get they get bigger, and like it's a it's a very democratic, you know, twenty five percent each kind of split, and that's totally fine. But when the three guys want to kick their member out, you know, the drummer, whoever, the singer, whoever it is, all of a sudden it can be very complicated if the, if that band is successful if they don't have a band agreement because. You know, there's there's nothing agreed agreed upon in terms of that ex member. You know, what are they entitled to? What kind of you know, what do they own in terms of the band's intellectual property and you know the trademark to the you know in the band's name and what kind of royalty participation are they going to have in the future? Are they allowed to to use the band's name in their in their new projects? And there's all sorts of questions that if a if a band member gets fired and and they're angry about it, they can make a really big problem for the band. And I I, I do a lot of work in that area. And a simple band agreement will address all of those concerns beforehand so that, you know, to, to tie all of that up. And then, you know, and some very often a band, you know, sometimes you have the four guys or the four girls or whatever, but other times it's just, you know, one person's band and, and then they, they bring in musicians to help them and stuff. Well, that needs to be structured a certain way too, because that person is the one making all the investments of, you know, of money into the band and is writing all the songs and all that sort of stuff. Then they need to have a agreement with, the people who are contributing, you know, that they own the intellectual property these people are creating or that, you know, the people can be compensated fairly, but you don't want to spend all your time and effort and money in putting it into a musical project and then bring in a, a member that it doesn't work out. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're making a huge problem for you to continue doing what you're doing. So, yeah, I think band, a band agreement is a big thing that gets overlooked. And I think it's, it, it could be definitely really beneficial to have something like that in place early on in a band's career. I completely agree. And I think the hardest part, and you can speak to this from your experience too, but, you know, the hardest part is that when people are in a band together, bands are so fun. They're happy place and they go to practice to have a great time and they play shows because they love it. And bringing business in 
feels yucky a lot of times to people. Like they don't want to talk about the business stuff because they feel like somehow it's going to bring it down or cheapen it or make it, you know, it's like, oh, well, this isn't my fun if we have to worry about like how the royalties are divided or, you know, who gets a piece of publishing or whatever. But, you know, I always try to tell bands, listen, it's the same as any other deal. It's like you want to be doing this for 20 years because you love it. 20 years from now, you're not going to remember what you guys agreed to. So this is just a way of writing down what you agreed to, what, you know, what you're actually agreeing to. And, you know, sometimes you do have to talk about like who gets writing credit. I mean, writing credit in particular, like songwriting can end up being like a completely make or break thing. You know, as we both know, there's no terrestrial radio royalty for performance. So the only person, if you end up getting a hit song on the radio, the only person who's ever going to see royalties from that song is the songwriter or songwriters. So, you know, that can be something that literally pays for your retirement or doesn't, right. <laughs> you know, based on your, on your agreement. So, I mean, those things can be extremely, extremely important down the road. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to get bands to, to even talk about it. Right. And the way and the, the way that those things work is very counterintuitive. And most musicians are not going to automatically understand what the standards are and, and how, you know, songwriting splits are, are typically shared and what constitutes songwriting, things like that. So, you know, when you have an attorney, I mean, it doesn't have to be an attorney, but typically it's the attorney's role, I think, to bring those issues up and to guide them through making those decisions and and to provide the momentum, you know, because I would. I wouldn't expect a band, you know, four friends to who who make music together to sit down and be like, oh, now let's let's sit here and talk about these twenty different business topics and put an agreement together. That would just be weird, you know. But when when they when they bring in an attorney early on, and and then the attorney can guide them, and say, by the way, have we created, a, you know, should we create an entity for your band, and should we do a band agreement, and you know, should we trademark the band name, and you know, you have a this manager you're working with, let's figure that out, you know, just. The attorney can quarterback these kind of things and just kind of, you know, push them through and make them happen in the, in the best way possible for the band so that the band doesn't have to be the one, you know, coming up with, with, all, with exactly how to structure all these things. Totally. I have one more question for you, which, you know, may seem in the weeds to some people, but I'm really interested in it in, in getting your opinion, which is on whether or not you should include a mediation clause in your contracts. And that I would say probably less with record labels, label contracts, because those are fairly straightforward, but like management contracts, band membership agreements, stuff like that. I've heard both sides on, you know, why people like mediation clauses and why people dislike mediation clauses, but I would love your opinion. It really boils down to who you're representing and, and how you can get some leverage out of whether or not you have uh, certain provisions in the agreement that are going to deal with dispute resolution or attorney's fees or things like that. And if you are you know, representing the, the party in that transaction that will be in a position where they can sue, they can afford to do it, they, they would have a reason to do it. And it's going to impose a lot of stress on, on the other side and, and it's going to give them a lot of leverage in the, in the case of a dispute then you don't want any kind of provisions in the agreement that are going to limit your client's ability to bring a lawsuit. You know, If you're the party that wants to, to regulate how any dispute is going to be resolved and make sure that there's, not, there's no crazy litigation happening that's going to be very costly, then you might want to you know, have provisions in there limiting what the, what, what the possible ways of, of dealing with disputes so that they don't become too expensive and things like that. So, yeah, so, you know, so mediation or arbitration, you know, th those can be helpful if you want to not have to deal with possible lawsuits. Right. Because a mediation clause, for those who don't know, is basically just saying that before anything proceeds to litigation, you'll have like a negotiation in good faith, usually with a mediator of some sort present. That's right. Yeah. You know, it's more reasonable the amount of, the amount of money that you're going to spend and how, you know, whether or not fees are going to be shared between the parties in terms of like the mediator's fees and things. That stuff is a lot more regulated because unfortunately the thing about litigation is that it's often used tactically for one party to get leverage against the other because they have the ability to pay legal fees and they have lawyers and all that sort of stuff. And the other person, the other party just can't deal with that, you know? So, right. you know, mediation can create a more even playing field. Right. And you should think about that young band members when you're getting into your band contracts in the first place, you know, is one of you going to end up with more money than, than the rest? <laughs> right. Sure. <laughs> Well, Gandar Savar, I really appreciated talking to you today. Thank you so much for being with me on The Future of What. Thanks for having me.
That was Belly of June by Horse Feathers. Buying merch from your favorite band is a great way to support them, but with so many bootleg products online, how do you know your money is going to the artists you love? Whether it's a t-shirt or a patch, your purchase should be officially licensed. Rockabilia.com carries one of the largest selections of official music merchandise in the world. Check out their store at rockabilia.com and get 15% off with the code PCFutureofWhat. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Justin Ringel of Horse Feathers. Justin, welcome back to The Future of What. Hey there. It's good to be back. <laughs> yeah, I think you were a guest on like our very first show like three and a half years ago. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's been a minute. Yeah, it has. But now you have a new album and you're like coming back into circulation. And it's so exciting. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm going to shake some rust off and get back out there. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, today on this episode, we are talking about contracts, and I thought you'd be a good person to talk to you from the artist's perspective. We talked to a lawyer about sort of the state of contracts in general and contracts between bands and labels and contracts between, you know, bands and management and stuff like that. But I wanted to talk to you about the idea of band contracts, like contracts between members of a band, because I know that you've dealt with that in the past and just wanted to get your thoughts on the subject. Well, I think as a general rule, I think contracts tend to be a good idea in almost every application, as long as they're good contracts. Right. Good point. (laughs) Yeah. In general, I think that, I mean, I've had a variety of different ones, ones that were pretty poor and quickly 
constructed that ended up being kind of problematic for me. Mm. And then I've had ones that were very labored over and a little bit more specific that tended to be good for most parties involved. And so I've kind of, there's been a spectrum. There's been a few different, but I would say that in general, they're probably a good idea. Yeah, definitely. Do you want to get a little bit more into that? Like, what is it? I mean, I always say, you know, Slim told me years ago that a really good reason for doing contracts is because, you know, best case scenario, you have a long relationship with the person, but 20 years later, it's really hard to remember what you guys agreed on. Right. Is that kind of like the crux of why you think contracts are a good idea? Well, yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, I mean, obviously the concept of it, at least binding you to some agreeable terms, as opposed to a handshake deal where all of a sudden somebody doesn't remember something you said or, or whatever. Right. Obviously a contract offers a lot more protection for both parties. And it seems just a lot wiser decision, especially for any type of long-term thing. But in general, I think it just allows you a degree of comfort in knowing what, like in a band membership contract, it can at least outline the expectations. So both people know what their roles are mm-hmm. or like what they're supposed to be doing or what they could expect to be paid or just some general guidelines where a lot of times in a band scenario that might not ever be outlined clearly or let me, let me say more often than not, well, about a hundred percent of the time, if you didn't have a band contract, that probably is not going to be outlined clearly. Right. Because let's face it, it's a pretty unusual job in comparison to like a nine to five job that you might have that might have like a corporate style guide as to how you're supposed to construct your emails and how, how what you're supposed to wear to work and all those things. Like that obviously doesn't exist for touring bands. So. <laughs> I could so assume scenarios of, you know, it's like, I mean, I've heard so many crazy stories from so many bands. It's like, you know, you could conceivably have a band agreement with somebody that just says, like, you must wear clothes in the van. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. (laughs) You know, stuff like that. I'm sure they're out there. Yes. (laughs) So I think one of the tough parts about contracts in the realm of musicians and, and bands is that you know, you usually get into bands with people that you consider friends. And I think sometimes people get like, they get hurt or they feel maybe offended. They're like, wait, I thought we were friends and we were doing something together, but you want me to sign some kind of document? I think that that, you know, it's just like in the culture, it's like, we're we're friends. Friends don't make each other sign contracts. But I think that's part of the problem, right? Like that we don't think of bands as businesses. Right, definitely. I think especially in the early days, it's kind of tough to break out a contract to your band and say, hey, let's sign this, especially if you're not making any money. Right. <laughs> it seems like kind of ridiculous and pompous. Right. But at the same time, those are that's kind of like precisely when that should probably be figured out. Right. So it's kind of tough. I mean, it's an unusual situation because, yeah, I mean, you know this, like the music business never goes in any type of direction that you can usually predict. So <laughs> true. yes, you might be in a band that is playing coffee shops or whatever, or opening for some people, and you don't know what could happen. And the business arrangement that you have, even verbally, could change, I mean, really overnight. Totally. I mean, it really could. Absolutely. I mean, think about getting a big sink. I mean, that has happened to you, Mm -hmm. you know, where you just out of nowhere get like a big sink, a whole bunch of money just descends on you. And it's like, what do you do in that scenario? Like, does ever, you know, does everybody get a cut of that? Do they get an equal cut? How does that work? And, you know, if you don't have that figured out beforehand, that can make for some even more uncomfortable conversations. Right. Absolutely. And I think that, at least in my experience, (laughs) yeah, as soon as there is money there is when you're going to have real problems. Mm -hmm. When there's no money, that's not the thing that, like, challenges friendships or anything. Like, (laughs) it's when all of a sudden the money becomes the problem. And when that shows up, if you're not prepared for it in the sense of having some type of an arrangement with a contract, it can really throw you into a tailspin. I mean, I've had in that scenario, exactly 
the first time we made any type of significant money, which, you know, at the time having zero money and then being handed money from a sink was kind of like winning the lottery, (laughs) you know, it felt like you might as well have said it was a billion dollars. Right. <laughs> it felt like such a crazy amount of money coming from making, you know, like hundreds to thousands of dollars. When you go in between those, it was like a huge leap. Right. And also for the people that I was working with and had worked with, it was the same for them. All those figures and everything were like a big deal because everybody was... <laughs> scrounging and not making any money. And, and it was like really important. Yeah. But in the longer term sense of things, like now being very decidedly in my late thirties and not my mid twenties, I look back on some of those things and be like, well, that really wasn't as big of a deal as it was personally at the time with all these people. And it wasn't as much money as I thought it was, but it would have all been solved had there been more explicit situations with contracts. Exactly. So Yeah, totally. It's so funny because it's like 10% of zero is zero and 20% of zero is zero. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like when you're making zero, you can agree to almost any percentage (laughs) because it doesn't, it's the same. Absolutely. But oh my God, there's a huge difference between, you know, 10 and 20% of something. Totally you know, something significant. So yeah, it's, it's, it's hard at that stage. One thing I think is kind of interesting though, is that, you know, when a band is still usually in the early stages, like fairly early stages, and if they have their business sense together, or if they've, you know, got any sense at all of, of what's going on at some point, people start the process of enrolling in PROs and they start doing the songwriter splits and the publishing splits that you have to do for the back end of, you know, if you're just going to sign up your songs for ASCAP or BMI or whoever. Right. And I think that's really interesting because that kind of brings that conversation to a band at a place where they might not have at all been thinking about it from a business perspective. But I almost feel, and you can totally answer this from your own perspective, I kind of feel like people are a little bit more, I don't know, like they're happier to make a deal at that point because they get it. Like, for example, you're the primary songwriter in your band. Like you are the person who writes the songs. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty rare, I would imagine. I mean, although, hey, I could be completely wrong. Maybe somebody's really unreasonable, but it probably makes a lot of sense to people to be like, oh, well, you should have a bigger share of the songwriting because you do most of the songwriting. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that that can be a tricky conversation or it can be an easy one. In the earlier days with my band, with certain people I played with and we were coming from that, you know, when we're talking about percentages of zero era, Mm -hmm. when it was like that, it was trickier because also everybody is so, you know, they have that very like youthful ego where everybody is going to be, everybody you work with in their 20s is going to be a rock star. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) I mean, it's just, it's like the mentality. It's like, they, they're they not really necessarily concerned about how to do that in a long-term sense or whatever, but there's definitely a mentality that this is going to happen and it, it's going to happen soon. Right. And that, I think, drives a lot of that kind of ego can, you know, be challenging at that time. Where, again, to contrast this now, being older and working also with older musicians and people who have been around the block a few times, they've usually been in tricky situations. They've had weird music business problems and usually things are way more cut and dry. Right. Like it's just there. It's way more, it's way more laid out. And so the question of dividing up songwriting splits or something like that usually is pretty, pretty simple, Mm -hmm. but I can see if there's some power trio that of like 23 year olds, (laughs) having a business conversation where they had only just played music, their personal arrangement and business arrangement had been based on the fact that they just play music. Right. And then they play shows. Right. When, in that scenario, and they, they like, somebody says, well, you know, we really need to figure out, we need to register these titles with ASCAP and we need to figure out what these splits are in case we get a publishing deal. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and it just like, I could just see, you know what I mean? Like, that's just not going to be like a very cool conversation, I imagine, unless they're like, unless it's very simple, like where 
it's just like, okay, well, this is all going to be split completely evenly. Right. But I don't think that that, that happens occasionally. Yeah. I worked with a band working on producing their record and they were completely democratic and everything was split a hundred percent. And that solved a lot of problems like that because it's just, that's just the basis for everything. Right. But not every band's left out. No, of course not. And I just, I guess I was thinking, cause in, like in my band, we did that too. Like when we signed up for ASCAP or whatever, you know, we just made everything equal, equal shares of everything. And I kind of feel like in my mind that makes sense because like in the early days you still like each other. Whereas, like, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, as things go along, you can totally get to a totally different point in your relationship. <laughs> right. Right. So it, that usually happens after about three tours. I think yep. it's probably like this. <laughs> yeah. A yeah. couple records, few tours, and then you're like, yeah. you know something? You better give me the exact percentage that is my due. <laughs> <Or else. laughs> yeah. I mean, another thing about band contracty type stuff is, you know, you've had a lot of experience with this because you've had contracts with members who are like members of the band for a certain record. And then you've had other situations where you have people who basically are hired for your tour. Like they come on and they get a salary, I assume. And, right. you know, mm -hmm. they know exactly what their obligations are. I mean, I assume that because you've been doing this for so long and you've had so much different experience, that you now have a real sense of what's comfortable and what works. Yeah. I've mostly gotten a lot of lessons from the school of hard knocks in terms of that. It's a lot easier now. It just, it just is like there tends to just be not as much confusion, not only because of the people I've played with, like for instance, my violinist, I've played with him now for a long, long time. So the band situation is a known quantity for him. Like he knows the arrangement. Mm -hmm. So that tends to be, a constant. And then hiring different people who have been in multiple bands and have had multiple arrangements tend to show up with like a sense of what they want mm -hmm. and what the market rate is for that. I hate to put it in that way, but you know what they know they're worth. And so it tends to be a lot easier negotiating than, like I said, with the kind of like youthful hubris <laughs> of, you know, like I'm going to be this huge rock star at 25 where it's like, you know, I, I've had some people where it's just like they record on the record and they're like totally confident that it's going to be like billboard number one. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because they were on it. It's like, this is going to be the biggest hit of next year. Right. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. let's roll back the expectations. <sighs> and we need to talk about how this, the money is going to play out if it's decidedly not the biggest hit of next year. Right. <laughs> you know, like let's think about that in that percentage. Right. Or in that, in that perspective. And, and that's kind of a gross generalization that I think it tends to be, I, I've experienced those. It's usually kind of the two extremes. It's either there's like a total lack of understanding as to what level or what kind of payment we may actually see from things. And then having their expectations being aligned to that reality versus folks who actually are, you know, been around the block a lot more and have a lot more like realistic expectations and thoughts about how much they want to get paid or how much they should be paid as a contributor or collaborator or all these things. They're usually like one of the two. <laughs> right. Fortunately. That's heartening for me to hear because it's kind of like, look, people do learn that this is a business over time. You know, not everybody stays with their heads in the clouds their entire career. <laughs> it's kind of, it's a very right. satisfying thing to hear. I, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think so. I can only speak from my own experience, but I, I definitely know for a lot of people, also the whole process of a music career can be also very brief. Mm, true. And so some of these things might not apply to them in terms of like, a longer term thing, like they might have a lot of success very quickly and very briefly. Right. And some of the arrangements in that kind of scenario, I don't know, sometimes it's the lack of a contract or honestly making some, some of the savvy decisions early on that actually will make their music career be brief. Right. So true. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. That's totally true. There's a lot to think about when you are signing contracts and documents and, and experience is extremely helpful. 
Oh, it's absolutely scary. Yeah. <laughs> totally <laughs> it's scary. It's really scary. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Justin Ringel, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us and good luck with the new record. Oh, thank you very much. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Horse Feathers and, of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.